G'day everyone, just a few quick insights into your episode today. Today's episode guest is Matt Foreman from Expon Technologies. Uh, Matt has taken uh, this incredible business around marketing technology and um, and actually extended reality. I'll talk a bit about that in the, uh, in the episode, but fundamentally kind of marketing and customer experience technology platform. And he's taken it in two years from zero um, to listing. So it's now on the ASX. Uh, it's been an incredible story of growth. They've got, you know, 120 people uh, now around the world working for them. So if you and you, you might think, oh, you know, it's a, it's a tech entrepreneur and I'm not in a tech business. So what am I going to learn? This episode is far less about technology and a lot more around building culture, building team, you know, uh, all of the all of the softer elements that actually have been able to help them differentiate and attract great talent. And that is relevant for every single business owner. So you're going to learn, you're going to get some great insights as to what it's like to be a, a public company uh, CEO from Matt, but also some really granular insights to how they've thought about building culture leadership and creating the right environment in which people can succeed uh, around the world working for their business. So I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. Uh, listen all the way through. You're going to love uh, those gold all the way through this episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. G'day everyone and welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fulfill the potential of their businesses, make bigger decisions with greater confidence and maximize the impact they can create in the world. I am your host Sean Steele and I have a very special guest today for you, Matt Foreman, founder and CEO of Xpon Technologies Group. How are you today, Matt? G'day Sean, fantastic, thanks. How are you? Hi mate, I'm very good. Good to see you again. Um, now you look, too. for those, um, I might... Um, I might just give a quick, uh, quick few insights into sort of your background and the Xpon, um, Xpon business, but please uh, make sure you, you correct me if I'm wrong. So you, you founded, uh, you know, you and I have met a few times. We've known each other for um, you know, a while back, actually, from the sort of world of advisory. Um, you founded and led um, five different um, digital startups, uh, including lots of capital raising, and you work with PE and you know, private equity, and you, you do a whole bunch of mentoring, I know, at um, River City Labs and the Innovation Center up on uh, the sort of technology incubators up in uh, Queensland on the Sunshine Coast, where we both uh, happen to live. Um, yeah. And you founded Xpon back in, I think it was late 2019. So I guess that was just pre-COVID, right? It's an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting yeah. time in trying to build a business. Interesting time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you went public uh, yeah. two years later, uh, end, of, yeah. uh, end of 21. And, um, and Xpon, I guess, as a, as a business um, is underpinned by two kind of key platforms. Uh, Wondrous, which is where someone, where a client, centralizes all their marketing and sort of and customer data um, to help them, I guess, um, deliver a more personalized experience for customers. And then you've got um, Holoscribe, which is an extended reality um, experience sort of platform. So people who don't have specialized skills can therefore publish extended reality and 360 type um, content across uh, any channel. And you've got customers in uh, Australia and New Zealand, UK and Europe as you've gone global um, pretty fast and you've got a team. What, what, how big would your team be now? Is it 75? To, uh, to I think it's about 120 now. 120, crikey, that's moving yeah. fast. Yeah, and your core development teams in uh, in Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, which is awesome. I feel like you, I, I don't know, everyone who's got their sort of development teams offshore, Vietnam seems like, I don't know whether you were a first mover, like yeah, was no one else going to be playing in Vietnam when you got there? Because no one else says to me that that's where their core development team, but you. Uh, that's sort yeah. of interesting. 
Interesting choice. Did you feel like they were, did you feel like you were early there? Um, yeah, well, we actually did an acquisition, the Holoscribe platform that we have. We um, acquired that back in uh, April of 2019. So right when um, COVID started to really bite, or was it 2020? 2020, April 2020, yeah. I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a small engineering team in Hanoi in Vietnam as part of that business. So that was the genesis of that. Um, ben Fogarty and Marcus Callan, who are the, uh, the founders of Holoscribe, they'd had a team up there for probably about four or five years. Yeah. Um, so we sort of just built on that presence that uh, we acquired through that acquisition. It's been fantastic. Like, the talent there is amazing. The culture is great. Yeah. And there is not that many Western companies up there. Probably shouldn't let all the secrets out. Myself and I, we were talking about uh, Nicaragua, actually. That's a uh, uh, development team. You should go to Nicaragua. That's where it's at. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So look, and I know I've probably completely undersold the uh, the platform's capability. You don't go public in two years without some technology that's got some real um, potential impact. Can you unpack a bit about what the sort of platform helps people do? Like, who, who's the sort of perfect client? Who's the typical? What are the typical use cases? And particularly also in the extended reality space, just sort of maybe give us a bit of a description of you know extended versus you know virtual versus augmented. Like, help people understand what yep. that actually means. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll just give you a bit of background around the problem space that we operate right. in, and that'll set the context for the actual platform. So. Um, the the current the core sort of root cause of the problem we solve for is actually a privacy problem, um, oh, right. and you know if you're familiar with digital marketing and the internet, you may have seen all this um, stuff around about third party cookies and third party mm-hmm. cookies are going away. All of the major vendors like Apple, Microsoft, Google will either re- uh, remove them, uh, well, everyone has except Google. Actually, Google's removing them next year. So right. that that sounds like just a technical uh, thing, but it's actually a fundamental change in yeah. how the internet works. Um, I reckon it's probably the biggest fundamental shift to the internet since probably the nineties, to be honest. So, right. um, because those those cookies, they're really simple technology. They're just a little text file that sits on your computer, and your browser controls them, and it allows websites and internet companies to track what you do um, on the internet. So now, with this increased sort of um, awareness from consumers around privacy, and mm. I guess an increasing level of distrust around how their information is being used online, <laughs> and then you see that match with the regulators all over the world. You know, Europe's mm. leaded that, led that with GDPR. Yeah. Australia's got their own privacy principles. The California Privacy Act. There's lots of legislation happening mm. all over the world around this. So that was really the catalyst for these internet companies to start to make this shift away from this tracking technology. Um, and just to give you a really basic example of what it's enabled, if you've ever been on Facebook and seen an ad for a pair of shoes and clicked on that ad and then those pair of shoes follow you around the internet for the next six weeks, whether mm-hmm. they're important or not, that's sort of it's third-party cookies has enabled that to happen. Yeah. Um, and with that going away, it's had a massive impact on the business models of these big internet companies. You know, I think Facebook um, said in their recent earning call, it's cost them $10 billion in revenue just from Apple um, making these changes. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, Google's making these changes in 2023. They haven't given it a specific date yet. But Google Chrome's the number one web browser in the world. So, you know, once Google removes that functionality, the impact's going to be immense. So it's going to cost these internet companies tens and hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm. Um, but also it's a it's a issue for advertisers. So it's it's whether a big issue for the advertiser, yeah, no retargeting. That's right. No retargeting on the internet and a real reduced ability to actually get really granular with your targeting as well because a lot of that mm-hmm. data that you know Facebook was tracking and packaging up and selling to advertisers doesn't exist anymore. So wow. that's sort of the root cause of how we've approached the problem that we solve. Mm-hmm. Um, and our wondrous customer data platform 
what it does is it enables organizations to use what's called first party data. So that's data that a company owns about its customers and consumers. Mm-hmm. And that can be generated from lots and lots of different sources of information. It might be from their CRM, it could be from their e-commerce store, it could be from their point of sale, if they're a retailer, loyalty. There's lots of different sources of this data. So this is data that a company owns and it's probably the biggest latent asset that we see in any organization. It's really underutilized um, data. So typically we'll see clients of ours, they'll have sort of six to eight primary sources of this first party data, Mm -hmm. but they can have up to 200 sources and it's all siloed throughout the organization. It's not connected. Mm -hmm. You know, what I see about you, Sean, in one system might be different to what I see about you in another system. So our um, Wondrous platform enables companies to bring all that data together and centralize it in one place in the cloud. Um, And then it runs this process called enrichment, which is essentially stitching together all those different versions of you from those different systems Mm -hmm. to create a a single view of the customer or a single view of you as a consumer. And once that's in place, that enables the machine learning, the AI to do what it does best, which is crunch these massive amounts of data and predict behavior. So it might be things like, you might have a, a propensity to purchase a certain product. You might have you might be ex, uh, you know exhibiting behaviour that might um, lead to you have a high propensity to churn, for example. So there's all these predicted insights that the system can generate once all that data's um, in place. Right. So, so with as, that, as an example of that, you know, I've I've purchased something and I you know I keep going back to the cancellation page or something on the on the website and it's going, hey, this guy keeps coming to the cancellation page, like he's probably in the there's a risk indicator going on there. Maybe this guy's likely to turn that kind of, as an, that's sort of a really basic example. Absolutely. Yeah, to give you a work example, like we work with um, one of the biggest superannuation funds um, in the country. So one of the things they're really keen on understanding is member churn. So members that mm-hmm. want to churn their money out of their super fund to another fund. So there's a whole heap of like data signals that can sort of predict that, that might be happening. It could be the sort of content and the pages they're going to on the mm-hmm. website to research how to you know move your super money around. Um, it could be their contributions have stopped. There's lots of different data signals that you can bring into this. And then the machine learning is, okay, well, this, for example, in a super um, example, this member might have a high propensity to churn. So before they churn, you might want to do some really targeted communications to that member to prevent them from churning, for example. So, you know, that's that's a use case that, um, you know, people would use their platform for. Um, so once all that data is in place, and this is where we come full circle back to the Facebooks and the Googles of the world that are, losing a lot of money from this is the data that our system has can be synchronized up in a really privacy compliant and anonymized way back into Facebook and Google and LinkedIn and all these internet advertising platforms. And that enables the company to run very targeted advertising against those groups of customers. We call them audiences, so those audiences. Um, Or they can use that to push back into content channels so they might want to run, you know, tailored personalized sort of messaging through content on their website or email or whatever the different content channels are as well. Mm. So that's the the core sort of, um, you know, uh, simplified version of what Wondrous does. Obviously there's a lot of technical stuff that sits under the hood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then where the Holoscribe platform comes in, that's a, I guess, a sort of bet we've made on the future. Um, We acquired that business back in uh, 2020, in March 2020, just as the first COVID lockdowns actually happened. So that was a very interesting time to acquire a business. Um, That team was based up um, in London um, and then they had that engineering team in Hanoi um, in Vietnam. So unfortunately, I never got to go to London when we acquired the business because we were locked down in COVID. I finally got there a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) Two years in the making, that trip. Wow. 
Yeah, but sort of my view on this and our view as Expon as well um, is, you know, this the, Mark Zuckerberg sort of termed this coin the metaverse and sort of made it popular, you know, six months ago or whatever. But our view was that is definitely going to be the next way that consumers interact with brands um, through digital channels is in a much more rich and immersive way. Mm. So if we have a platform that enables brands to build content and publish experiences in a really simple way, and then can power that with all of that data that I just spoke through, that personalized data, we feel we've got a really compelling solution for customers where they can we can help them with their data and help them optimize their data. And then we can help them with their experiences and optimize optimize those experiences and content um, as well and, and really powering it with machine learning and AI. So you no, know, that's still fairly nascent. Like there's still a lot of hype around the metaverse and that mm. whole um, area as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what we sort of see is customers are using it as kind of as a bridge to the metaverse. And what I mean by that um, is it's about learning. So it's about testing stuff, getting data, seeing how customers interact in these different environments and these immersive environments. And then really using that, that the learning to inform their strategy as the metaverse sort of becomes more and more um, mainstream, which I think the barrier to that is the hardware. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned a few things around augmented and extended and virtual and all these different realities. Mm. Um, you know, I think our view is it'll be a blended reality. Um, and when the hardware looks like these reading glasses that I'm wearing on my head, yeah. Um, and you don't look like you're in Star Trek, like some of those original <laughs> versions of the glasses yeah, did. Currently, um, yeah. Yeah, it'll be much more mainstream. And that's where I think the power of that sort of technology where you can put a digital overlay um, over the physical world or you can actually immerse yourself in a fully virtual world and then link that back to a physical experience in some way. And that might be a shopping experience in a store, for example. You can try on clothes and with your you know, VR headset on. And then if you actually want to go into the store and try them on in real life and buy those through a physical channel, that blended experience and that blended commerce is certainly where we think things will sort of migrate to in the next sort of three to five years. Yeah. I, you know, for those who haven't spent any time kind of looking at the metaverse or considering it yet, um, you will have, uh, if you want to go back, you can listen to a podcast I just did with um, Barry O'Reilly uh, from the Unlearn podcast. And we have a much deeper conversation about the metaverse and NFTs and blockchain and the whole sort of Web3 space. So worth going and having a listen, uh, listen to. But if you think, you know, I, I like you, am a big believer that this is a material shift um, that's coming and particularly you know, I, I'm always you know I'm typically bringing an education lens uh, to it because I spend so much time in that industry but I, that's absolutely where I see the future of blended education um, experiences because it perfectly brings together the social um, cohesion and the social learning experiences that people are looking for the interactivity that comes with it but also then the ability to have you know um, asynchronous offline you know study when you want learn the boring stuff by video that we're already doing today but actually what's often missing at the moment where we're doing virtual um virtual you know sort of instructor-led learning it's still very you know it's instructor to students students back to instructor it's very difficult to get a quality conversation that's that feels like a conversation between students even if you break them off into a zoom room um it's not the same uh you're missing all of those side conversations the ability to sort of choose who you interact with all of those um small uh small cues but that actually really matter uh in a in a social experience so it's really interesting that you guys are taking an early bet on that and it's um that's really exciting and what yeah. will the um, what will the new partnership you've done with Google a month ago mean for your customers? Yeah, so we announced uh, I think it was about three or four weeks ago what's called a CMU partnership, which stands for Customer Match Upload. And like I sort of spoke through around those use cases of taking that first party data in a really you know privacy compliant way, enabling that to synchronize into the platforms. That's what that partnership with Google um, does. There's a very 
short list of um, vendors globally that have sort of met the stringent security criteria. And what that means is if you're a Google Ads customer, so you buy Google AdWords for search or you're buying um, ads on YouTube or whatever the Google um, ad products are, our platform natively integrates into that now. So you can go into actual Google Ads interface um, and you can select Wondrous as your um, integration source. And then if you've got data on our Wondrous platform, you can sync that into Google for your retargeting and your exclusion lists and all the different advertising use cases. So um, yeah, we're really excited about that. It's only quite new. Um, and so there's a lot of work we're doing now and starting to build the awareness around that and working really closely with Google um, around how we start to scale that up. Because it does two things. It, helps your apps become more effective. And the other thing it does is it provides data signals to the Google platform so their machine learning can learn faster. Because in this modern digital marketing world, there's just too many variables. And for a human to be able to guess and optimize all those variables, it's just too hard. So enabling the machines to do all that heavy lifting and predict which customers and how much you should pay for the ads and those kind of things, um, that's the most efficient way of doing it. And so that, that partnership that we've done provides signals to the algorithm so the algorithms can learn faster and they can actually predict and deliver outcomes better for advertisers as well. So it's a great win-win for Google, us and the advertisers. Love it. Love it. We've talked about the genesis of the business in 2019. Did, why did you decide to go public? And did you set out with that intention from the get-go? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think maybe to wind back a little bit, uh, 2008, um, I'd established a digital marketing agency that was an agency called Traffica, probably one of the biggest independent agencies in the country um, back in the day. So we helped a lot of customers with their Google ads, their Facebook ads, those kind of things. Um, they're a very, very hard business to scale. They're low margin. It's just very competitive. Um, and in 2014, we set up an analytics practice inside that agency really to help our customers use all this data. Um, that was being generated through their advertising and all those customer databases that I mentioned before as well. And they had very different dynamics. It was very sticky. It was high margin. It was recurring revenue. Um, and so fast forward to 2018, we made the decision to spin out that analytics practice out of the agency and then go about winding down the digital marketing agency. And that was the genesis of Xpon. So 2018, we did that. 2019, we incorporated Xpon. Um, and then we did that acquisition um, over in the UK for Holoscribe in, in 2020. And that was really bringing together um, the moving parts um, that we had um, to then enable us to build the business that we've got today. Um, I guess I've always worked for myself for most of my career. I've done little stints working for other companies, but always like the autonomy of being an entrepreneur and making my own choices and answering to myself, um, although we all have a boss and so my wife might uh, think otherwise. But um, yeah, no, the autonomy is really important to me as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and so we looked at all these different options. We looked at venture capital, private equity, um, and we decided probably the best route um, was for us to actually do an early stage IPO. I think when we made that decision, obviously the dynamics in the market were very different to what they are today, even right in the now. last few yeah. months. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really the, the reason why we said, well, we'll do an early stage IPO rather than a um, raise PE or, or um, venture capital just to allow us to have more autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, that's worked really well for us. And that was the right strategy for us because we've brought businesses together into Xpon as well. And the founders are still involved. Mm -hmm. um, having that real founder-led entrepreneurial kind of spirit is super important. Between us as a sort of senior exec founding team, I think we own 53% of the company still. So between mm -hmm. us, we're still the majority shareholders. 
Yeah. Um, so we still do very much have the ability to make the choices that we need to make, obviously within the constraints of being a public company. Yeah. Um, so we raised about five and a half million in, um, I guess you'd call it seed pre-IPO money. Mm-hmm. Um, that was done primarily through um, uh, high net worth, so sophisticated investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just before the IPO, so we IPO'd in December 2021 and we did a pre-IPO raise sort of July, August that year. And that sort of brought the first two institutional investors into our share registry. Um, so there was an um, investment fund called Microequities. They invested um, in another um, fund called Altor Capital um, and they invested in that pre-IPO. So that was five and a half million all up. And then when we listed in December, we raised another 12 and a half million um, through the IPO. Okay. So, yep. you know, timing wise, fantastic. We got it away before everyone thought tech stocks were the antichrist. So that's yeah. good. Um, <laughs> We've got plenty of capital in the bank so we can go and execute on our strategy and we don't have to be short-term in our thinking, which is really, yeah, really good. That's great. Um, and yeah, we're you know, growing the business super fast at the moment. And um, you know, we're, we're very lucky because the underlying unit economics of the business, so they're the economics of you know, what a customer costs to acquire or what they call the CAC, customer acquisition cost. Mm-hmm. And then what, top, what that customer's worth to us is their lifetime value. Yeah. They're very, very strong in unit economics like world-class so um, that means that at a customer level we've got very strong customer profitability um, Mm -hmm. and we can afford to invest in continuing to grow obviously in the current environment everyone wants to know when you're going to be profitable and when you're going to start paying dividends and spitting out cash Um, we've got a line of sight on that we're not announcing that to the market as far as forecasts at this stage but um, you know the business model has been you know proven for the last few years and as we scale it just gets better actually which is fantastic does being public also mean that you, I guess it sort of brings a few different flavors, doesn't it? And I'm really interested in what you've been, what you've enjoyed and what you've been challenged by and what you've had to learn to become a you know, public company CEO versus a private company one. But is one of the benefits, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, do you therefore, you may spend more time with investors on sort of investor relations, but do you spend less time having to think about how am I going to raise, you know, how am I going to get to the next round and who are we going to raise from, which I imagine is a you know, fast-growing tech business it takes up a hell of a lot of time uh, of the CEO's thoughts. Is that, yeah. is that a reality? Is that a benefit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, there's always constant communication. Like, I'd say probably 50% of my time is spent in that investor relations okay. and, you know, market-facing sort of conversations. Yeah. Um, a lot of it's around education because, you know, what we do is quite technical. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've learned as I've spoken to a lot of investors and analysts is their perception of marketing is madmen, right? You do long lunches, you, you, know, you go to parties, you <laughs> flop around, right? As I sort of explain to them like how technical it is and like how it's so important and so complex that you're using data to drive it all, they go on. Most of them say I never realized marketing was that complicated. So a large part of my job is actually educating the market around yeah. what modern marketing is and how complicated it is these days. So then they understand the investment um, opportunity of investing in a technology company like Xbon that's powering that next generation of marketing and customer experience. Yeah. Um, so that's that's where a lot of the time goes. Um, and yeah, look, obviously, in, when the markets are good, you can go back and raise capital, and you know it's not um, tremendously hard. When the markets are tough, right, like they are right now, I'd hate to be out there trying to raise money. Um, mm. I think you'd be getting touched up pretty badly. Yeah. Um, but like I said, we're in a good position. We've got plenty of cash in the bank and we don't need to raise cash. So we're just focused on execution and, and scaling now. And what have you had to learn? What, what have you enjoyed? What have you been challenged by? And what have you had to learn to be an effective public company CEO versus the private stuff you've done before? 
Yeah, the governance stuff. Um, like doing an IPO is not something I want to do twice in my career. Um, <laughs> it's something I'm glad I've done. So I can tick it off and yeah. say I've learned a lot and did the process. But there's a lot of compliance and legals and governance stuff, which, you know, when you're a founder and you love customers, you love products, you love selling, mm-hmm. um, spending a lot of time talking to lawyers about what you can and can't <laughs> say, and it's it's painful. But, you know, that's done. That's a one-off project when you, when you list. Yeah. Um, coming out of the back of that once we've been listed, I think probably the stuff that I've had to adjust the most to is, you know, I've got a board, I've got a governance board, I've got two non-executive directors, um, fantastic mentors for me, both got a lot of experience in public companies and technology companies as well. Um, so they bring that governance layer to the business. And as a founder, when you're used to running fast all of the time, you do have to learn to slow down a little bit to make sure that you've discussed things you know, thoroughly mm. with your board and you've understood all the risks and all the governance requirements before you make um, some of the big decisions. Yeah. Um, so that's probably something I wouldn't say I don't like, but it's something I'm not used to because I've always yeah. had the autonomy just to run fast. You're just running. Um, I'm not going to say I love it either because it's probably one of the least <laughs> favourite things that I do with my time is talk about these topics. Yeah. Um, what I've learned the most is the learning, um, you know, learning so much about um, how public markets work, um, how sensitive they are to sentiment, how important it is that you choose your words very wisely because you can shift sentiment unintentionally by using the wrong words when you're describing the business. So that's been mm-hmm. really good for me. And I look at it a little bit like enterprise sales because, you know, when you're selling a product to a customer, you know, you're really trying to understand what the needs are of that customer. And I look at um, investors the same way, you know, what's their investment thesis, what's their funds remit, how do we position our stock as a product that fits into their, you know, their requirements um, that, you know, they can confidently invest for the long term. And I think that's something that we've been very lucky with. The lead manager for our IPO was a, a company called Sequoia um, Corporate Finance. They did a fantastic job in building our share registry as well. So a lot of the, all of the institutional funds that invested are all long investors, so they're investing for the mm-hmm. long term. They're not short term trading, um, and none of them have sold stock since we've listed, even with all the current market sort of yeah. um, upheaval. So that's good because we've got right. long term investors that you mm-hmm. know, are backing on the future. They're not backing on the short term, quarter to quarter. Kind that's of really helpful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I assume that takes a little bit of pressure off, uh, you know, kind of a whole bunch of people jumping up and down looking for dividends you know, in the short term uh, when you've got that's right long term. Yeah. What about? Um, you know, I guess to attract, uh, you know, you're attracting the attention of both retail and, um, and institutionals, but, you know, when you're going through that process, of course, you know, people want to look at a company and go, well, they've obviously got a real top talent. Obviously they're you know, looking at you as, a, as an incredibly key um, part of that, but also looking at the rest of your team. How did you approach finding your key people and, you know, how much of that was sort of, you know, pre IPO versus, okay, now we've got money from the IPO and now we're building, you know, a stronger executive team. Like how, how did that play out? Yeah, um, so all of our um, executive team were pre-IPO. Some of them, okay. their last appointment was our CMO, um, Jennifer. She started, um, I think, October 2021, so a couple of months just before the IPO. Um, but, yeah, I think what we focused on there was obviously the skill sets that we needed. That was first and foremost. Um, but as far as um, attracting them, it was really about culture, like cultural alignment. Like We're very values-driven we spent a lot of time um, over the last 10 years from even that predecessor business to Expon really focused on building culture and values that mean something to people. Um, and so when we are able to talk really um, passionately about that and authentically as well about our values and our purpose and really trying to align what our people do in our business to not just how to help the business grow, 
but how to help them grow as individuals, either personally through personal development or in their career and how they sort of develop their technical skills or their sales skills or whatever their remits are um, within the business. So having that real purpose-driven culture has really been very um, powerful for us because we've attracted the right people. Um, and that you know they've had plenty of options. Like it's a pretty tough job market out there when you're recruiting at the moment. So mm-hmm. um, you know what we're finding is you know there's certain talent that will go for the money, and that's fine. That's where they are, and there's no no dramas with that. And there's other talent that money's important. Don't get me wrong, but they also want to have purpose and want to work with a business that's just more than making money. Which you know XCon yeah. is much more than just making money. So and it seems yeah. like that. I mean that's certainly been a big trend over the last three years more and more, you know, people have got choices and especially top talents. They've got a lot of yeah. choice. Uh, and so if you don't have something to bring to the table more than money, then, um, you know, even if they just come for money, kind of always makes me a little bit nervous because uh, you're kind of going, well, how long are they really going to be here for um, until they get the next best offer, basically? Um, so I'm yep. just distracted by money sometimes are um, harder to harder to retain and, and um, contribution from. What about, so what have been some of the key, you know, when you think back on what has you know, I guess change the dial on growth in this business. You've obviously grown very quickly, very fast. What are some, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the key ingredients, decisions that you've made, investments that you've made, strategies you put in place that have really unlocked the capacity for you to scale? Yeah. So I think there's a few different elements to that. Um, Getting your solution market fit right is super important before you drop the hammer um, on scale. And I think as an entrepreneur, you kind of sometimes have your happy glasses on and you're like, this is working, I want to really scale this, and but you haven't been as rigorous as you should have about the data. So back in the early days, it was certainly, I'm not going to say false starts, but we certainly ran fast and we went, actually, that's not quite right. Let's just back off a little bit, tweak the model a little bit, now try and run again. Yeah. So, And I think that's great because you fail forward and learn quick, you iterate, you adapt, and then you try again. Um, so that's um, that's certainly been the process for us. We haven't certainly got it right 100% of the time first go. Which I don't think we've ever got it right first go. <laughs> so <laughs> plenty, of, plenty, plenty of learnings and plenty of data that says maybe you should have done this differently. Um, so I think having that sort of uh, mindset in the business, that fail fast, um, fail forward, there's no mistake, you know, you're not going to fail if you learn something. That's really important. Mm. And creating that psychological safety within the team that it's okay to fail as long as you've learned something and then we use that learning to move forward. That's really important. Um, distribution. That word, that word psychological safety, I mean, re- that term has really emerged only in sort of the last few years. But I guess, you yeah. know, from your perspective, that's in the absence of people feeling safe to take risks, you're going to end up in a business that's exceptionally top-down driven, a few people are making all the decisions, there's no you know, energy or innovation coming from the rest of the team. No one's kind of seeing the problem coming to the solution because they're all scared of you know, getting hammered or being shamed or told they're wrong. Is, is, that, is that how the way that you sort of see psychological safety in the, in the culture that you build? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the symptoms of it is blame because I think if you're in that environment where you don't feel psychologically safe and you can't you know, say what's on your mind or you can't make mistakes and learn from them, then you start blaming others, you start blaming everything but yourself, right? So mm-hmm. like you see that manifest um, itself very, very quickly instead of, t- it was one of our core values is own it. So, you know, you own your outcomes no matter what, what happens. If you've made a decision, you own it, good or bad. Um, and sometimes for their words, right, and they're nice words, but actually living that day to day, you see people on a different kind of spectrum of how they respond mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. And I think as they start to feel safe, then they go, okay, it is okay if I own this. I don't have mm-hmm. to try and place blame or shift blame or anything like that. So yeah. 
I think that's one of the symptoms of it is, uh, is that most definitely. Mm. Sorry, mate, I interrupted you. You were just unpacking some of the, the key drivers. Uh, I just got excited about psychological safety. So yeah, back to you. I'm trying to think where I was at. Oh yeah, distribution. So that that was the, that was the other thing that's supercharged um, our growth. So you know our partnership, uh, particularly with Google, um, is is very very strong. Um, we get about thirty odd percent of our new leads that come directly from the Google sales teams. So we yeah. work very closely with the teams at Google. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the ability to resell Google's technology and bundle it with our own technology as well. Mm-hmm. So when we go into a customer together, you know Google has a customer. They've got a problem to solve. We've got technology or we've got capability that we can bundle with Google's technology and our technology together to solve those problems. So that's worked really well for us. And that certainly has given us an unfair advantage as far as getting in the door mm-hmm. with lots of um, companies. Yeah. Once we're in the door, it's our job to close the deal and grow the customer. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the other, other thing that's really catalyzed our growth is very, very focused on customer success. So... Yes, we've got an excellent sales team that's focused on winning and landing customers, but we've probably got a bigger focus on customer success. Yeah. So we do um, NPS or CSAT um, every quarter um, with our customers. And again, NPS currently is 86. That's so very um, strong. Um, and for and anyone who hasn't good. heard those terms, that's net promoter score and customer satisfaction. Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And so that net promoter score, that's on a scale of kind of zero to 100. Um, so we're sort of towards the top end of that. Um, anything over 80 means your customers are advocates and fans and they'll refer you um, to, to their networks as well. So we get referrals from customers. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the rules we put in place with our customer success team is if, a, if our customers are at least at 80, you cannot sell anything to them. So we, we really have a very strict rule around That's great. they need mm-hmm. to be satisfied and advocates before you try cross-selling and upselling the other things that we offer. Um, and because... They are advocates when we do want to cross sell and upsell. It's very much from a solution perspective of well, we're close to the business, we understand your needs. Here's a solution for it. The trust is already there, so it enables us to grow our customers and expand our customers. And that's been really other core catalyst of growth is we just keep growing our customers and we don't churn them. Like our mm-hmm. um, average monthly uh, retention rates, ninety nine point five percent, I think was the last quarter's um, retention rates. So it's very mm-hmm. very low churn. And the other metric that we look at is a metric um, called revenue retention. So 100% revenue retention means the customer's stable, they're not growing or um, shrinking. Anything over 100 means that you're growing those customers. So our rev retention, I think, was 140% from memory from last yeah, quarter. Right. So we're continuing able to keep growing our customers, mm-hmm. but not in a keep flogging them product, but yeah. we keep strategically partnering with them to solve problems and yeah. we're, we're sort of embedded in their team. So they've been the, really the things for us mm-hmm. that really catalyze this fast growth. I love that. And that's, I love the, um, the framework and principle you've put behind, you know, not allowing someone to sell something to a customer who's actually not truly at such a level of engagement that, you know, you know that they're getting value and therefore new products and solutions make sense for that customer. That's, um, that's an excellent, uh, I've never heard anyone think about it that way before. And that's really valuable yeah. for people. Regardless well, you very rarely have to have a conversation on price either because yeah. the trust is there, the value is there. So it's not a price conversation. So yeah. your margins are strong too. Yeah, yeah, very, that makes a lot of sense. What, um, what advice did you receive or, you know, either before this, before this journey with Xpon or during the journey with Xpon that had a real impact on you? Uh, you know, advice that kind of, you know, stayed in your mind or that you came back to or sort of, or principles that you came back to either that impacted either the way you developed the business 
or the way you've chosen to lead the business? I think when it comes to people, I had a mentor. I was a general manager of a, um, a company where I had a job back in the early 2000s, so very early in my career. Um, and he said to me, when it comes to recruiting, he said, if you need to talk yourself into it, talk yourself out of it. Um, and that stuck with me. And I say that to all of our team when they're hiring as well, yeah. is if you're sitting there going, oh, yeah, maybe, and you're trying to convince yourself, not the right fit, talk yourself out of it and move mm. on. Hard in a very tight labor market to yeah. be true to that. Um, yeah. But you have to, otherwise you're going to bring people into your business that don't fit your culture, might not have the right skill set, um, mm-hmm. and that's going to impact your customers as well. So that, for me, simple advice, but has stuck with me and I use it every day still, 20 years later. Um, I listened to a podcast, and I can't remember the name of the CEO. I think he was the CEO of Workday, which is a US-based yeah. sort of SaaS um, company. I think it was him. Mm-hmm. I can't be 100% sure. And um, he was saying the number one skill in this modern era to scale a business is having the ability to scale empathy. And I think that really stuck with me as well because it's quite different, right? And Mm -hmm. when we think about what empathetic leadership means, you know, it's hard work being an empathetic leader because you've always got to be putting yourself in other people's shoes. You've always got to be pausing and going, hang on a minute, I'm not going to respond emotionally to this. I need to be empathetic and understand. And then you translate that to a customer and you go, well, how do I develop an empathetic sales team they can always put themselves in the customer's shoes to understand what's going on for the customer. So I think that was really good advice and it's something that we're still working on. Like it's, yeah. they're, again, they're easy words to say, but manifesting that, bringing that yeah. to life takes constant energy and work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something that's been very, very um, impactful on me. I love that. And I, for those who want to dive a little bit deeper on that topic, I interviewed um, Stephen M. R. Covey, uh, you know, the, the son of the famous um, uh, Stephen Covey wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he's, you know, he's really a kind of thought leader on trust and empathy and how you, to your point, how you scale organizations through, uh, you know, the empathy is what brings trust in the organization. And that's where, you know, that's where you get people to flower and take risks and, uh, and bring their best and feel, you know, feel safe in doing so. You've, you've done a hell of a lot, uh, Matt, in a really short space of time in this business. What What's been the most difficult um, time you've had to face as a CEO and, and who did you lean on or how did you get through that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's like everything's um, good after the fact, right? So you can look back on stuff in, in hindsight and it doesn't seem anywhere near as bad. I think you know, we were scaling very, very quickly right from day one. Like it's, it's just been a rocket ship. Um, and in those early days, we hadn't raised a lot of capital. I think the first amount of capital we raised was maybe 1.1 million from memory. Um, and so there was times there where we go, if we can't, you know, optimize the business model so that we're generating more free cash flow or we can't raise investment, we're going to be in trouble. Um, thankfully, we did both. That's something we've been very focused on is how do we have a, a business model that produces cash as we scale and uh, we're investing heavily. So we're still not quite cash flow positive, but we're yeah. certainly... I've got very good cash metrics. Um, and back to the point before around making sure that when you're pitching to investors, you're putting yourself in their shoes and trying to understand what the investment needs they have. Um, that helped us raise capital. But yeah, there was some sleepless nights along the way around, I hope we can pull this off because we're going to run out of money pretty soon. Um, yeah. We always had a plan B, but you never want to think about plan B because it's not yes. pleasant, right? Um, yeah. So I think that was one. I think the biggest challenge I've had as the founder and the CEO um, is getting the balance right between autonomy um, for my team, my senior Mm -hmm. executive team and 
like I said, we've brought businesses in that have founders, so they're used to being autonomous as well, and that's part of the secret sauce um, for Xpon is, you know, you've got this founder-led mentality, um, but trying to get that balance right between giving them too much autonomy and then things happen in silos and they're not consistent um, and being able to provide enough sort of structure and influence, I guess, to say, well, these are the things that are non-negotiable as far as how we need to do things at Xpon right now mm. um, because you don't get economies of scale if you've got different people and different business units doing different things. And that's simple things, right? Using different CRMs, for example, because you bought by a business that's using one, we've used mm. a different one. And, you know, I think they're growing pains for any business that has acquisitions as well as those systems integration, yeah. that people integration piece. Yeah. Um, but that has been something that, um, you know, I've had to lean on, particularly um, my board. So our chair, Phil Harris, and our um, non-exec director, director Tim Ebick. Um, they've been really, really good um, at supporting me there um, and just listening. Um, I find that's been really valuable. I think one of the things they do well is they don't tell me what to do. They don't tell me how to suck eggs. Um, mm -hmm. They basically just listen to me. Maybe they get bored sometimes because I talk a lot to them. But um, yeah, they ask me good questions. And I think that's really the value that you get when you've got a good board around you is they know the right questions to ask you so that you figure it out for yourself, um, particularly if you're a founder of a business um, rather than maybe a professional CEO that is used to a bit more corporate structure and a bit more sort of direction. Mm. Um, yeah, so they've been some of the challenges is like scaling that integration and scaling the people side of it. And people's hard, right? There's emotions at play. So, yeah, it's never a straight line. I love that. I love that. And, you know, it sounds like, because uh, I was going to ask you about what, you know, how, how you've been able to retain your personal, uh, I guess, to make sure that you've been getting what you need out of the journey. Because the reality is when you're growing a business that fast and you're the founder, you're, you know, you're being pulled from pillar to post, you've got family responsibilities, you're trying to have, you know, find some sort of semblance of balance and how you show up every day impacts absolutely everybody and everything, which is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure and responsibility. And the moment you go public, you've got even more, you know, more expectations, more everybody looking to you for, for more stuff. How have you managed to, what sort of what practices do you put in place for yourself as a founder to make sure you get what you need energetically to make sure you can show up and give what you need to everybody else? Yeah, um, it's always a juggling act. I don't think there's such a thing as balance. It's more like a pendulum, right? It swings mm. back and forth yeah. depending it's on what's It's not like a static on. point that you get to. You're like, oh, I've got balance. Yeah, exactly. All right, like, I'm there. Yeah, it's not like you're a Buddhist monk just, ah. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I know, look, I'm very, very, very lucky because we um, we live in a beautiful part of the world. We live out in the hinterland on the Sunshine Coast. So, it's, you know, we've got acreage, we've got animals. My daughter's right into horse riding. So, um, you yeah, know, that gives me a very different dynamic to this crazy digital world that I live in from my work persona into this relaxed sort of open spaces, open air um, environment. I come up with my best ideas when I'm out with nature. Like I very rarely consider a computer and come up with good ideas. If I'm out in the paddocks walking around with the animal, all my ideas come to me out there. So I connect with nature. So that's been really good for me. Um, I think that's actually, that's probably been the number one ingredient that's kept me sane, to be honest. And I think with COVID and with the lockdowns and having to work from home, again, I was really blessed because I was working from this beautiful place. And mm. if I was ever really struggling with something, I'd just get up and walk outside. Yeah, um, that's been good. Get I've got, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've got the support of my wife. She's fantastic. We've been 
married for 25 years now and she's been on this journey with me that whole time in different ways so she understands me manages to call my bullshit when it needs to be called <laughs> um, but and supports me really well as well so I think we've got a good partnership there so that really helps me um, as well yeah. um, and then I think just having the right mindsets and I think there's a few mindsets that I've learned over the years to really focus on so a gratitude mindset um, part of our stand-ups is the first thing our team need to say in their stand-ups is one thing they're grateful for. Awesome. So again, it just keeps reinforcing gratitude in the business as we scale and get Beautiful. that economies of mindset scale. Um, an abundance mindset. Um, there's a, uh, a network called Abundance 360, Peter Diamatis. Um, mm -hmm. I've been involved in that for about five years. Um, that's been really influential in the way that I think and create this abundance mindset and look at the world as glass half full rather than glass half empty. Mm -hmm. um, so they're probably the two, the two sort of mm -hmm. mindset things that have helped me a lot as well. I love that you brought that into the, to a business because quite often people find uh, you know find it quite difficult. It's like, well, where how much of this is about me and my you know that what I like personally you know versus what's going to make sense for the company. But I think you know when people are on the other side of that and all of a sudden they've got a they've got a practice that's personal that's showing up in their workplace. That whole sort of you know whole of life integration. That yeah, that's what everybody wants at the moment. They don't want to have this completely separate you know completely separate lives where that creates quite a lot of stress and tension for people. The more um, the more they can feel like they're just their whole selves are sort of almost moving in and out of work. It's not a, you know, it doesn't have this big, you know, black and white. Okay. Now I'm at work and I have to be totally different. Stick my shirt on, like my shirt on today. Yeah, yeah, Usually yeah. wearing a polo shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, but only because I was cold. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I should dress up. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mate. And the other thing it does is it gives you an insight into the whole person. I think that's humanity on that yeah. as well. Because you have people and they come in and they'll talk about, and they might talk about being grateful for this team member, they helped me out with this thing, or they'll go, I'm mm -hmm. grateful for my spouse because they did this, I'm grateful for my kids mm -hmm. or my parents or mm -hmm. whatever. So you start to understand your teammates as a whole person and mm -hmm. that really helps bond, people yeah. bond together, which I, I find is, is, is really valuable. That's a great, uh, yeah, I love that practice. And that's, um, that's beautiful yeah. you brought that in. We've got, uh, we don't have heaps of time left, but I'd love to know a bit about um, where do you see the business in three years? Like if take ourselves out in the future, what's the business going to look like? What do you think? Yeah. So I've got to be a little bit careful around what I can and can't say yes, from of course, a sorry, forecasting yeah, perspective, but certainly from where the technology is going. Yeah. Um, like I said, if we go back to the start, our bet on the next version is the metaverse will be mm. a thing. And there's Web3 technologies that underpin that, obviously blockchain and blockchain. NFTs and other yeah. parts of it. But I think we're going to live in a world where data is becoming more and more valuable. Um, I, I have a hypothesis. We might be able to prove it pretty soon that data is going to be more valuable in a recession than not in a recession. And I think mm -hmm. as we go into tougher time, organizations are going to need to rely on their data to make more informed decisions quicker. Yeah. Um, so the value of that data um, will increase as the economy potentially goes into a recession. So that as companies rely on their data more and more, I feel we're really well positioned to help um, help them do that and obviously help us scale as well. Um, and then as this next version of the hardware for the metaverse comes out with the headsets and things like that, we think that, you know, that's going to be really the next version of, of where X1 lands is, you know, a data-driven experience company um, for Web3. I think that's probably the most succinct way to explain it, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I certainly look forward to watching that uh, watching that evolve because uh, such a super interesting, uh, super interesting space. I'm, glad, I'm so glad that you're on the front end of that and really, you know, playing well, it's nice and building your capability there. 
Um, I ask every founder this um, question and this, it's, it's called above all else. So I want you to now, okay, we've gone out three years. I want you to go much further out and go out to, you know, the, um, the later stages of your business career. Maybe you're getting a bit uh, more towards your sort of yearning years um, for want of a better word. You know, you've achieved the stuff that you've wanted business-wise. You've, you've tackled the business problems. You've built the businesses that you wanted to and you've, you're starting to slow down a little bit. And you've got the, the, the CEO of the world's largest global community um, of first-time founders, you know, tens of millions of them all sort of hungry to, to learn from founders like yourself who succeeded in scaling. And she gives you a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to um, share your three above all else's, which is to finish this sentence, you know, three things that you must get right as a founder if you want to scale are what? Like above all else, these are the three things you've got to know. What are they for you? Well, I've hit on one, empathy um, and connecting to your people. I think if you don't have that, you're not going to be successful in this modern world. I think people, 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 right? The ability to understand people, to motivate people, to empower people, um, to bring the best ideas out of people and to enable them to move really quickly. Um, I think that's certainly going to have to be key um, moving forward. And I think curiosity, like leaning into curiosity. One of our core values is lead with curiosity. Um, and so being able to lead, lean into that curiosity and just go, well, just because that's how it's always been done, is there a better way? I wonder how that works. I wonder why that does that. So just having that curiosity, I look at, you know, you look at kids like toddlers and just why, why, why? So having that mm. toddler mindset almost around continually asking, but why, but why? Mm. Um, I think they're the things that are going to make people successful. Obviously, networks, connections, capital, technology, yeah. They're almost they're all table stakes, right? Um, yeah. But what's going to differentiate the good from the great? I think are those sort of softer things. Um, mm. well, that's my opinion, anyway. That's beautiful, and I think it's a really great, um, you know, almost challenge uh, for our audience for you to step back and think about, you know, in the last uh, in the last week, how much time have you spent on consciously thinking about how you're building your culture, how you're engaging your people, how you're creating empathy in that environment? Not, I don't mean just spending time on people stuff because that can be just you know tr- quite transactional, but actually, mm. are you really consciously thinking about how to create that environment um, for your teams. You know, sometimes we don't spend enough time doing that. And as you said, that's the differentiator in a modern world. You want to attract great talent. Uh, you ain't going to do it by just having the best widget. Um, that's just, yep. you know, people aren't interested enough uh, anymore. And they're not all that grateful for the job because they've got options. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, there's plenty of smart people and there's plenty of great tech out there, right? So yeah, that's not a differentiator, either of those things. Uh, yeah, especially as we go global, right? So it's a big old yeah. talent pool out there. Well, um, Matt, that's all we've got time for uh, today. Thank you so much um, for everything you shared today. It was really, you know, there's a lot of humanity in this conversation. I really enjoyed the, the, the warmth um, that came through in the way that you obviously lead the business and I really applaud what you've done so far and can't wait to see where you get to uh, over the next um, several years. I'll be watching closely. How should people, um, if they want to learn more about Xpon, how should they follow along or, or get involved? Yeah, no, thanks. So xpon.ai, so that's xpon.ai. Um, we're on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Um, and yeah, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm just Matt Foreman um, or one word on um, LinkedIn. Uh, so yeah, they're probably the best places. Beautiful. Thank you so much, mate. Well, folks, um, before you go, Thank I you. hope you really enjoyed the show today. Um, you know, please uh, feel free to jump on the, the podcast, leave us a review. It really helps it get into the hands of other people. Uh, we'd be super grateful if you did that. If you prefer the socials, you can, you can find uh, any of the podcasts on the socials at Scale Ups Podcast. Uh, on any of your favorite ones. And uh, you've been listening to Scalar's podcast. I'm Sean Steele and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks, Matt.
G'day everyone, just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week.